podcast, Picks and Perspective, with Chris Johnson. Episode 20 with Devin Townsend. Love this dude. Super creative, super funny. You should give him money for stuffed animals. And you should listen to his music on the Players Pick podcast playlist on Spotify. So, Players Pick Podcast, episode number 20. It's my favorite. With Devin Townsend. Yeah. Hi, Chris. Hi, Dev. How's it going, bud? It's good, man. We just spent uh, three and a half hours driving up from San Diego today. <laughs> hey, it's, uh, you know, it's got to make up for lost time a little bit. You know? Yeah. Well, we've known each other now for, what is it? You came and stayed with me, and you were. I met you when you were working um, in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, to start this, I got a, a story that I'd love to tell. Okay. So the first time we stayed together, uh, mm-hmm. I stayed at your place when you were in Seattle. And, That's right. And I, I remember this, and I've told this to a bunch of buddies, and I think I even mentioned it to you once, and you looked at me like I was wearing your sweater, but I'll bring it up again. <laughs> so I was sleeping on your couch, and um, you lived in this great place in, in the trees and in, in a condo, and you woke me up early, and you were like, Dev, Dev, wake up, wake up. I was like, oh, what, Chris? And he goes, dude, there's a place that I go to every morning that I'd love to show you. And <laughs> I was like, oh, cool. So we get up, and there's mist, and it's early morning, and we walk through all the trees. And then the trees open up, and there's a dock that mm-hmm. uh, was out in the water, and it's this beautiful thing. And there's like two chairs, or one chair. I forget what it was, but there was a chair. And, <laughs> and you're there, and it was gorgeous. And you're like, I come here in the morning. It's kind of my place that I like to spend time and chill. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was right with you, and I was sitting there, and I was like, man, this is beautiful, and it was quiet, and we're just sitting there. And then this thought came into my head that I was like, man, if I had millions of dollars, I would train a dog to um, be underwater in a glass dome, but not panic, like so not as cruel <laughs> to the dog. And just once, while you were out there on your own, about 100 yards away from you, I just wanted the dog to come out of the water and just look around and then go back under the water. <laughs> because if it only happened once, um, it would make you crazy. Like you wouldn't totally. You wouldn't know what to do. No, you'd just like you'd be like, dude, a <laughs> fucking dog came out of the water, and everybody's like, dude, you know. No, 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 it didn't. And if we had like everybody involved in the in the process of making you know our buddy go crazy, there's uh, something about that. I just something find about the perversely the, the, beautiful the unity. Yeah, you know, around. for the rest of your life, you know, you maybe make T-shirts and just sit out there waiting in vigil. <laughs> the, <laughs> The mysterious dog. Yeah, dog Jesus the rose. <laughs> Lake dog rises again. <laughs> Dogs us. <laughs> that was that was Lake Sammamish on the east side there in Redmond, I believe. That's what that was. The the mythical dog of the Sammamish. Well, you know, and you remember very clearly where we went from there, right? No. <laughs> Pumpkin pancakes. Oh my God, they're so. Good. <laughs> you know, that's another thing. It's like in the time that we spent together, your. Um, your interest in food is <laughs> something that I have um, also been very, very um, uh, happy with because I love eating and I love mm. eating good food. It's like a lot of times people are just like, oh, I just like eating. Yeah, it's you know, food. They just put, you know, go to Denny's and get a bucket of Rawr. eggs, you know, Rawr. food. But you've just like, no, this place here. But you only eat at this place, this one type of scone that's covered in like <laughs> goose butter or something. Oh right? man, the ridge because we went to the Ridgeback Cafe another time, yep. and we got we did the what would you call it? It's armadillo sauce. The armadillo sauce. It was like a, so good, and it was, it was a crepe that we had that morning. Yeah, and then we went to another place. We had the biscuit with the egg baked inside the oh, biscuit. Oh, dude, 
Dude. Yeah, you're good with I'm that. I'm a fan yeah. of that. So anyway, it's been a good podcast. That's yeah, so, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, and since we're telling stories, yeah. uh, I, I, we just, I just watched your sound check and, uh, and uh, I'll be a little emo here for a second just because like the moment I heard you playing acoustic guitar, I was like transported back to uh, you teaching me for the ghost thing, oh, and that's then true. And, and it tra- and transported me back to being in London when I was like getting all like teary. I was like, oh, I just like I hear Dev's open C uh, thing, and and I'm familiar with it more now than I ever was just because of of that experience with you. And and then then you did some vocal checking, and I wasn't looking at you, and I heard you do like a little your kind of scream sing check thing, yeah. and it reminded me of the very first time I heard your voice on Vi's record. Oh, and yeah. just like it kind of like I had this little full circle kind of emo like moment like oh god I really love this guy <laughs> you know like and I mean like I'm glad I'm so glad that I get to be uh, to be friends with you and, and you for too. us to have the thing you, you know? too man and for those uh, who who uh, maybe missed a step there um, in 2011 um, I had finished doing the four Devon Townsend project records basically the four ones that comprise what the project was supposed to be in the beginning mm. and um, uh, in London we did four nights where uh, first night we did Key second night Addicted and then we did Deconstruction and Ghost and Chris who uh, uh, had helped me with uh, the acoustic guitars and then consequently we realized that we um, like food and like fucking <laughs> with other people <laughs> we thought well, we should do this and so Chris came to London and he, uh, if you look at the DVD of uh, Buy a Thread uh, the ghost show, uh, the snappy looking fellow in the back is, <laughs> is Chris. So mm, thank thanks. you, man. Yeah, thank you. But I also feel that at the same time, as we were talking about on the way up here, um, the industry is small and smaller now than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. And um, douchebaggery travels faster than, than uh, you know, the H1N1. Nice yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So it's, it's pretty quick that after you've been doing it for a while, you're just like, oh, yeah, you know that guy too? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fuck that guy. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's really easy to, to get a bad name for yourself. It is. Yeah. yeah. And also, as I um, am well aware of, it's difficult to get a bad name for yourself and then uh, clear your name. Correct. So I, uh, I feel that, um, you know, it's even our buddy that, that showed up here tonight that is in a band that we were all, you know, sort of friends with each other. And you haven't seen each other in a while. Mm. And the first question we ask each other is like, dude, it's been 15 years. Yeah. Do I owe you an apology at all? Did, or like, did I fuck you up at any point? Did I do something stupid? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. uh, well, and I actually, it's interesting too, because I still draw from our first couple of hangs in Seattle when you first came down to check out guitars. Yeah. One of the first things, I don't know if it was in that, in that session or if it was in one of those phone calls or emails, but it was one of the phone calls or something uh, that you had said, uh, well, look, I've been doing this a long time. And uh, you're currently going through uh, trials and tribulations with another company, and you're like, just like, hey, I just, I just got to tell you, like, just don't, don't fuck me over, like, don't, you know, basically, you know, like, if if you can't do something, like, I would love it if you just said no. Yeah. And and I really loved that, and and I, that has been a, a constant inspiration through the last ten plus years of doing this gig uh, for all these different companies. Is that. I felt I, I felt the boundary a with you like as an artist saying please God just just t- shoot me straight yeah. and then I thought oh well what a what an interesting concept just being truthful and honest and like maybe maybe just like saying no when you can't do shit and and you know and then do the things when you can and I, I attribute 
honestly, that particular bit of advice to a, like the monumental, <laughs> if I've had any type of monumental success in my life, it's uh, kind of to, not that I wasn't going to do that. No, but I mean, it's but, funny that it's, it's like we were even talking about it our way up here, how, how sometimes you offer advice to people that is coming from a place that they may take it as like, wow, that's really sage. But ultimately, the person who's, who's distributed is just because you just got, you were broken. Yeah. And you're just like, please don't break me again. Yeah, and it's funny, it's like, wow, that guy said something straight up. And you're just like, wow, my reason for saying that is because I was like, I just, I... And you know what's funny as well with the, the shoot straight thing is as simple as it sounds to say, hey, just say no if you can't do it. Yeah. Which we both agree is like, it works really well. Oh, it's amazing. However, if as an artist or as an individual, your lineage is based in people-pleasing... Mm. which for me was a big part of my uh, uh, subconscious agenda. And I think when it came to bands, when it came to relationships, when it came to expectations from the audience, there's a big part of me that was, um, I think I had a lot of my self-worth invested in whether or not other people approved. Mm. And um, as we even discussed on the drive up as well, when I was young, um, my role in the family was, you know, you could do no wrong. You were kind right. of like the golden boy. Mm-hmm. And so when I finally, you know, did a bunch of acid and fucking went bananas, <laughs> and then my mother was just like, whoa, really? <laughs> you know? Apparently you can do some wrong. Well, that was a great thing to actually uh, learn for me, mm-hmm. is that not only can I do wrong and publicly and uh, um, uh, in a humiliating fashion, but also the ability to sort of come back from that uh, and the, the tenacity and the friends that are around me that are like, yeah, you were an asshole, but it's cool because I know fundamentally, you know, it was a mistake. Right. Um, I think what came from that as well is, is something that really has benefited my work over the past decade where it's as much as I do care whether or not people like it because you ultimately want to share um, something that resonates with the truth with your artistic motivations. Uh, as an artist, you have a moment of emotional significance that is clearly beyond you. Mm-hmm. And then through your bias and through your work and through everything that you do, you try and represent that in a way that, although maybe people don't like the aesthetic because you know it's a really individual thing. It's like, well, this middle-class white Canadian male who's had this, 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 and this experience and likes stuffed animals and puppets. <laughs> That's through that filter, hopefully there's a moment of truth. And, and by... Uh, by resonating with that, then people are resonating with something that is beyond us. Mm. And I still care if the truth is is in there. Mm-hmm. Yet, um, there's also a significant aspect of it now where I'm like, I can't spend that energy um, trying to please Mm-mm. others, right? Well, there's only so much to go around, as, especially <laughs> the older we get. Right? Uh, <laughs> so you have to you know, choose uh, how you use your fucks. Yeah, choose how you use your fucks. Yeah, like oh, you know, so good, right? Like, yeah. uh, how many, how much fuck are you going to give, <laughs> in in which direction? Like, yeah. I love one of the one of the more uh, new agey um, book guys that we've. I don't know if we've talked about Dr. Joe Dispenza, but he talks. One of his coins is like, where your attention goes, your energy flows, mm. and so. If we are always diverting our energy to, oh, like, oh, let me help. Like, don't, I want you to like me. I want you to like me. Like, we're spending so much energy to do something that just really can't ultimately be done in a lot of parts of our social interactions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's just like very m- momentary aspects of what we can put band-aids on instead of like reserving the energy for the things that we can affect, which are usually our own personal, you know, experience. Like how I perceive what you give me. Like how, how can I change my perspective? 
to better suit the situation that's not necessarily trying to please you, but like just using it wisely. Like, okay, I, I'm done now, and I'm going to move on. And it's interesting because that concept resonates with something I had talked about with a lady at a hospital at one point. I, I think like lots of us, um, I don't know about yourself, but I, I can't imagine that you haven't had the thought. But a lot of people that are sort of uh, interested in these sorts of existential um, bullshitteries. <laughs> um, I question sometimes if altruism is ultimately just uh, an extension of, of uh, selfishness. And if mm. humans fundamentally are capable of, of true altruism, if, or if it always has an agenda on some level, like um, I contribute to the charity because I want to be seen as the person who is right. contributing, or I help that person who's in need by giving them $10 because it makes me feel like you know I'm closer to God or, or whatever it is, right? Sometimes I think it's... For me, I, I would just sit, pipe in and say, sometimes it's both. I give $10 because I'm like, yo, it's going to feel good to give this guy $10, but also just because I, pra- I try to practice, like what would it feel like to be on the corner and not have $10? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, uh, if somebody blessed me with $10, that would be dope. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, both kind of almost are, can be true, I guess. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think um, I think uh, uh, up to the point where I had sort of articulated in my mind that that was actually uh, a question. Mm-hmm. I was, I think I was projecting my own um, uh, lack of self-esteem onto the equation. Mm-hmm. And it was actually uh, a buddy that said, you know, I think if you typically uh, use self-deprecation as like a defense mechanism or what have you, a lot of times I think you can talk yourself out of the fact that you've done something nice for somebody by mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, explaining it away as being fundamentally selfish. Mm-hmm. But it was in that hospital, actually, um, where I saw a nurse, like a lady, who mm-hmm. was exhausted, mm-hmm. that was taking care of somebody with clearly uh, no overtly selfish agenda and whether or not there was something else going below the surface or or you know however far you want to follow that rabbit hole i found it um quite uh uh relieving to actually see a human being uh doing something for somebody else um for just the the sake that they feel compassion for them right 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 so yeah it's awesome to see an example yes right yes and I mean, I think it was also it also uh, very clearly displayed um, uh, how far up my own ass I feel like I can go, left to my own devices. I, I I saw an article in the Onion that I thought was great, where it was like psychologist um, relates all of human experience to his own trip. Uh-huh. You know, he's like nine out of ten psychologists think that their wife was just a shrieking hyena. You know what I mean? <laughs> So it was nice to have that sort of laid bare, right? It's like yeah. all these steps are, are good for my creative process, for sure. Right. Um, so, so, players pick. How <laughs> many, you're 20 into this now. Yeah, this is number 20. Um, cool. Yeah, you know, I, I, I like, uh, as we've kind of discussed a little bit about it, I, w- one of the things that it's kind of interesting to ask this question, I, I find that nobody has really been asked this question. Okay. And that's just like I'm looking for origin stories like about you as a player but through your guitar pick, okay. What were you, what were your first memories? Who gave your first one? Is there anybody that influenced you along the way? Mm-hmm. I think um, I remember the first guitar pick I had was with a guitar that a kid at school 
covertly tried to sell me because he mm. didn't want to play guitar, but his parents had paid 800 bucks for it. <laughs> so he just gave it to me out the back of his door one day, and it came with this shitty paper-thin, you know, the type that... A celluloid or something? I or? don't know. It's like... It was not... Excuse me, much thicker than a piece of cardboard. Okay. Right? And really, like, flappy and everything. Yeah. And I remember thinking at the time, oh, that's what a guitar pick is? Huh. That seems voraciously uncool. Because <laughs> I remember trying a riff, and it's just like, uh, you know, it's like a limp dick. Yep. And um, a lot with it. <laughs> from there, my dad had finger picks for the banjo, you know, the one on the thumb and the one mm-hmm. on each fingers. And uh, again, I tried to play uh, Judas Priest songs with that <laughs> to uh, questionable uh, ends. <laughs> and then um, the first actual pick that I think I purchased is the same gauge that I typically use now, which is the green Tortex 0.73, and it's the typical pick shape, the, the teardrop. Well, the green one is the 88. Oh, it is? Because this is the thing, uh, remember, this is correct. You're right. there was the thing where you did play 88 forever, and then we accidentally sent you the 73s, and you're like, oh, I kind of like the 73s. I just got used to it. it now went... I got the one millimeter, and now yeah. I'm used to that. So, yeah. But it was the green one, so you're right, that's the point. 88? 88, okay. Yeah. So uh, that was it, and I remember playing that, but it, it, I didn't put a whole lot of thought into what it was about a pick that either inspired me or, or didn't. I just thought that the first one was like a write-off. Sure. And the second one was cool, but it wasn't like uh, a fetish. You know, I didn't think, okay, well, with this pick, I shall travel. It was just <laughs> the thing that you used to hit the strings. Yeah. But when it became um, a fetish, in a way, for me, is... Um, I went through maybe three years of my guitar playing in the formative years where I was the guy that my identity was that I was the guy that used copper picks. Oh. So there was a music store that you could buy three picks at a time for six bucks or something. It was like really expensive. Wow. And there were these copper picks that, um, for whatever reason, uh, I just really liked. And I think, in hindsight, I liked it because it was different. Sure. Rather than me having the chops or the uh, the skill to utilize it in a way that sounded different than the paper thin one I used in the beginning. Yeah. And in fact, I remember recently I asked uh, you if I could try out the Phil Collin ones. Yep. Which were brass. Right. Um, to because I remember that was like my thing, mm-hmm. and uh, I quickly realized that it is no longer my thing. Yep. But uh, <laughs> uh, that was the first real pick experience that I remember as being like a definitive part of my uh, guitar playing growth. So from from the 88 regular shaped picks, you went into the copper picks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like, how long do you think you... About three years, and I tried a couple different gauges. Mm. They had them really thin, and then when they broke, you just had like a shattered piece of metal between your thumb, which was... uh, Amazing. No bueno. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh, and they they oxidized as well, which oh, is got gross. Some patina like type of look. Well, it just looks like an old penny. Ah, and uh, yeah. as a side note, um, I have two things that I can't stand, and I don't know if it's. Um, and when I say that, I mean in terms of like uh, phobias. Okay. Uh, these aren't phobias to the point where they're uh, immobilizing, but they're phob- phobias to the point where it's like I, I do whatever I can to avoid them. Mm-hmm. One of which is coins, like change money, mm-hmm. and the other is jewelry of any sort. Like I absolutely loathe touching jewelry. 
Wow. Like because of the metal yeah. jewelry? And like, I think I, I played both of those things back to my mother had a massive purse, like ooh. this void that just mm. things would go into. And when you're kids, you know, you didn't have a lot of money. Sure. And she would have a piece of gum. And between my sister and I, she would break the gum in half oh. and then put the other half <laughs> of gum at the bottom of this, like, you know, all the, the weird schmuck that just like ends up accumulating in any sort of carry mom's purse. Mom's yeah. purse. Yeah. And she would pull this half a piece of gum out with like a piece of an earring stuck into it oh. and a penny stuck to it. And she's like, you want some gum? You know? <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, like, Fuck no. Yeah. And then when I gave up on my copper picks, it was because all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, this is a penny. You're like, I don't like pe- I don't, don't like pennies. Change. It's a smell. It's everything about it, right? Yeah. To this day. Like I end up giving um, uh, exorbitant amounts of tip to somebody if the product is $1.01. One you just know, give I mean, it all away. Yeah, like, it's like, don't want any of it. It's two bucks. Yeah. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Now it's yours. <laughs> yeah. It's now it's your problem. Wow. Yeah. So then was there, from the copper picks, where did it go? I don't think I remember. I think I, um, I think I used whatever I could. There was a gray fender one, if memory serves, that okay. was, um, Ribbed for her pleasure. Like a nylon style? That's what it was. It yeah, was yeah. nylon, yeah. And yeah. it was a little thinner, but not too bad. It was gray, so whatever that gauge was. And then um, I think it wasn't long before I decided that uh, bass picks were where it was at for me. And ever since I've been playing, not only professionally, but in the formative years of trying to become an active professional musician, mm-hmm. I used the big pizza slice picks. Yeah, the uh, the triangles. The triangles. Yeah, And... Um, I like them for a lot of reasons. I like them because they're substantial, and um, I've always gauged quality of things based on whether or not they feel substantial. Mm-hmm. It's the same reason I like heavy guitars. Yeah, you know, someone gives me a, you know, like, oh, you should try this guitar. It's like twelve it's grand and it's ultralight, and I'm just yeah. like, I'm gonna break it. Yeah, you know, and it's same thing. It's like my the relationships in my in my life are all long term, and I think. The people who are in my life are resilient people. Mm. It's the same thing. I'm like, what? That's gonna break you, really? Oh, dude, I don't know how much we're gonna have to talk about anymore. <laughs> so someone's like, well, here's this guitar. You know, you gotta be really careful. And I'm just like, it's not for me, bud. <laughs> that's that's actually a really good. I I, I feel similar in mm-hmm. that way. Like if it's too dainty, yep, mm, totally, maybe not so much. So you know, my the guitars that I uh, have designed with Framus, you can put them on the floor. Mm. You're not gonna break the headstock. They weigh between eight and 10 pounds. They've yeah. got an Evertune on there. It's Extra like weight. you can essentially drag them behind the tour bus to the next gig and you'll still be in tune and it'll yeah. be all right. You You're know? telling me that because you made the guitar extra thick that mm-hmm. it can, even though it has the kickback on the headstock, you totally. can lay it on the floor and Insert. it doesn't put weight on the headstock. Exactly. And that's the whole idea because... I like the sound of a Les Paul custom, and that was kind of the idea going into like the Stormbender thing, which mm. is a terrible name, but I'm going to say it with a straight face from here on in. And to make a guitar that had that set neck, ebony fretboard, um, uh, mahogany body, uh, maple cap, that particular radius on the tilt of the headstock, all that contributes to a sound that with a heavy uh, like uh, tone mm-hmm. sounds to me what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. It's really thick and the harmonic lineup in a way that I just love. So, but Les Pauls just kind of look dumb on me. And uh, you know, and when I put the guitar on the ground while I'm recording, which I'm going to do, 
because expediency in the studio is more important to me than you know options. Sure. I'm just like, dude, I want it to be in tune. If I put it on the ground, I don't want to be careful with it. If I've got an idea, if I've got a creative flow, I want uh, the quickest way to point B. And uh, I broke the headstock on a flying V. I broke the headstock oh. on, a, on a, a Les Paul because I put it on the ground. And then I go to take a piss and I step on the guitar. So with the framus, I'm trying to think, okay, I'm going to piss. I'm going to put it on the ground. So let's just think ahead on this. Let's just fix it ahead of time. And this, the thing with the tri-picks is exactly the same principle. Mm. Um, I can grab it in a way that feels substantial. Plus, it's got three corners. and which, all equal. Yeah. yeah. The one thing, and we've discussed this, and it's still on my mind. Mm. And at some point, it's going to... Uh, somebody's going to make this. Yeah. Um, my favorite picks are... They've got wear. So a lot of times, you know, uh, with the, uh, with the, with the, what are they called? Triangles? Is yeah. that just it? Yeah, they, they call them a tri. So they're, they're tumbled in telk and the edges become rounded and smooth and it's, it's, you know, a nice new fresh pick. That's not the sound that I want. The one that I want is when the edges are frayed enough that when you play on a clean sound, it adds grit to the tone. Yeah. And I have, thanks to you, um, many picks. But when I go to record, when I go to gig, I go through my laundry bucket that my wife very kindly has set out just <laughs> for picks. Oh, nice. And there's picks there from 30 years worth of being an idiot. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? ESP picks and like ones from years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll go through that and I will test each one of them and try and find, because between a, a triangle pick, that's six sides that potentially can give me that sound. Right. And... Um, when I find that, I will fetishize that pick until I inevitably lose it. Mm. But um, we've discussed, well, how do you try and make that? How do you replicate that? We tried it without tumbling them. Yeah. Um, you know, my thought at first was like, well, maybe we can find some sort of material that has some sort of grit built into it. But then I think that becomes, um, uh, uh, there's a lack of control to that. So you're going to find maybe you just have like a shitty, gritty pick. I think we're going to mold it. That's, I think, what, what, what's going to happen ultimately. But. I think the shitty gritty would be a great shitty, name for it. Shitty gritty. Yeah. Yeah, Dev's <laughs> shitty gritty. Come the on SG. down. Come on down. Yeah. Get some SG. Hmm. Yeah, I what's think, that stand for, guys? Super good. Super yeah. good. Super guitaro. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. No, that's, that's, uh, that makes sense to me that... Um, because I actually saved one of the picks that you gave me from that, and I, I showed it to Jimmy, and he's like, yeah, I don't know, we're going to get to it. You totally. know? Like, of course, yeah, right. Uh, but, he, but now that he's been able to do some of this stuff, like we are talking, I mean, yeah. he's, he's done it for, uh, for Jeff Loomis recently. Uh, didn't put the grit on it necessarily, but was able yeah. to mold a Tortex-style pick into an Ultim mold, which like, emulates that same like, like, type of edge. But what I think we're going to end up trying to do, at least, is... Uh, on there's a there's a certain uh, jazz three that we do that, that Dunlop does that is uh, it's the 2.0 and and they they put a texture on the inside of the mold. Mm. It's it's kind of an even texture. Yeah, that still but, would work. But I think it could lend itself to your thing in the right. The closest that I found in a production pick is the Altex stuff. Yeah, you know because Tortex uh, I've used it forever, um, and it is. You know they're smooth, and you they break down quicker than mm -hmm. a lot of uh, you know like the Altex or like the Flow or whatever. Sure. But but ultimately um, the Altex has got more of a grit, not grit. Um, it it uh, sticks to the strings more so mm. than gliding off of it 
and okay. that gives a good heavy sound. And for me, that's the closest I've gotten to a stock pick. However, the ones that we made that I'm currently using have a color in them because mm -hmm. the typical Altex thing is that, that sort of opaque, amber, amber sort of look. Yeah. But then when we put the color into it, the thing that I liked about the Altex... Oh, it changed it. Changed. So it's ongoing, but even at that, with the Altex, I just shred the shit out of them, and then eventually I got one that does that, right? Right. So, okay. Yeah. To be continued. Mm. We'll work on this. We'll work <laughs> on this, I promise. Uh, that's good stories, though. I, 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 I think about the... Uh, uh, the heft when I because you you actually you and my brother my brother is the same way it has to be heavy totally. it has to be substantial mm -hmm. for it to like feel like for it to register as having value not only value uh, but truly yeah but also um, psychologically when I'm playing like a lot of the music that I write it's orchestrated there's choral stuff there's a lot of moving parts but the fundamental part of what I do is octaves and fifths. Mm. Uh, because the intervals that um, I want to layer on that are complicated to the point where sonically there's a lot of information going on in the upper mids. Mm -hmm. So when I'm writing riffs, they are really knuckle-dragging. Even if it's amidst things that are very complicated, mm -hmm. the root of what I'm trying to do is only typically octaves and fifths. Mm. And uh, again, with the construction of the guitar... With everything that I do, it's about trying to get those octaves and fifths to harmonically resonate in a way that there's no um, shuddering. Mm -hmm. By doing that, I can layer orchestral elements, vocal elements, keyboard elements on top of that, and it occupies a completely different frequency range, mm -hmm. and it allows me to mix it in a way that is more um, open. And Often I get tagged with the whole uh, wall of sound thing. Sure. But a lot of that for me is just because I'm only working with these two speakers and it's a pain in the ass because what I'm trying to do, trying to crowbar that into those two speakers, that's what's going to happen. You get that big thing. But, um, you know, the next step with the Empath record is I'm doing it in surround. And I found that oh. by doing that, uh, it's a lot easier to sort of distribute that, that harmonic uh, information. Mm -hmm. However... Um, when it comes to the guitar, uh, I want the riffs to be super fucking heavy. Mm -hmm. And I want them to be simple, and I want them to be uh, not fast. I want them to be like quarter notes and just like like caveman Substantial. style Substantial. Substantial. Yeah. So psychologically, um, the weight of a guitar uh, appeals to me because it seems like it's heavy. And so he playing a heavy instrument makes me feel in a very tangible way that what I'm playing is affected by what I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. That's a great expl explanation. Oh, you know, I'm a great explainer. Yeah, you, ex you explanate <laughs> well. Uh, thanks. For the explainer? Yeah, for the expl... We should get shirts made. Expl explainer. Yeah, ex yeah, that man is full of explanatives. Explanatives. Yeah. Uh, well, explain me this. Go. Um, Riddle me this. Yeah, <laughs> Batman. Yeah. Um, Bat Dev. Bat Dev. We, uh, I like to, I mean, we've already been there, already there talking about things and perspectives and stuff, but like, that's another thing. You have, uh, quite the, uh, the experience now. I mean, you have had experience for a long time, but like, as a world traveler, you've recently been to India, you've been all, you've done gigs all over 
the place. And I just wonder at times, like, through that crazy schedule and through those, those uh, a vast array of experiences, like, what have you learned and how have you kept yourself together <laughs> through all of this? <laughs> well, first off, I appreciate the assumption that I'm together. <laughs> well, I mean, only that you're in one piece currently. Okay, that's fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, thank you. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with the objectives. And um, what I have been trying to represent um, through interviews or, or opportunities like this is that the work that I do is very separate from uh, the music, um, which doesn't bode well for an industry that is looking to uh, categorize mm. artists. Like, mm -hmm. okay, well, this guy does prog metal or this does new age or, or whatever um, but my objectives as an individual have been for as long as I can remember um, and even before I was aware of of what it was that I was trying to do has been rooted in self-actualization that's the goal mm. how do you become who you are in a way that when you speak your truth creatively artistically um, you're not hesitating and that plays into improvisation, that plays into onstage banter, that plays into all sorts of things. And the process of unraveling the baggage mm. that I have accumulated and we all accumulate totally. has been uh, such that each period of my creative work, the albums act as a thesis of a particular period of time that in hindsight I can reflect on what was it about that particular period that I needed to um, solve? Wow. So when strapping existed at the time, uh, and it wasn't until hindsight, I was able to recognize that my fear of confrontation was such that um, overt displays of anger I felt uh, incredibly threatened by. Mm. So my reaction to that and my defense was uh, to actualize my anger that has come from multiple multiple different places, you know, whether or not it's like sexually or or through my initial experiences in the music industry. Mm. I thought at the time that, and I was clear in my mind that no, I'm just angry. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I'm going to uh, utilize this particular period in my life where everything clearly resonates with this color, with this tonality, with this name, with these people, with this sound. And that became a thesis, if I look at it that way, that mm. lasted four or five records. And it wasn't until it was done and it started to become successful that I was able to see that your inability to understand anger based on, in a lot of ways, uh, during your upbringing, your, your parents were affected by anger. Like their parents were, uh, you know, there was alcohol in the family and there was things, even though it was loving, sure. that overt, overt displays of emotion were uh, considered not only to be um, uh, uh, undesirable, but also a threat. Oh. So if we were angry overtly, mm -hmm. if there was anything like that, it was uh, immediately like the kibosh is put on it. Like you don't do that. It was oh. met with resounding anger. So as somebody who from birth has been uh, very sensitive, the loophole that I found is that you could, you could display those emotions if it was artistic, right. if it was music, because on some level it negates its, um, uh, like, like what it actually is. Mm -hmm. So I found that all things got hardwired to that. And by the time strapping was done, um, I recognized that my 
inability to recognize anger as being something other than an aberration. You know, I, my inability to recognize that anger is a part of the human condition and my function. And as an artist, unless I'm able to make peace with that, all it's going to do is fill me with fear. Strapping became this mirror for that, and it just drew it to me. And I just was surrounded by angry things. Wow. And then when it became popular, I started recognizing I could like download. I remember being on stage, and the mm. show was great. And I remember thinking, if any emotional outburst becomes popular and people see it as being a way to generate income, it rationalizes oh, that type of behavior to the point where you become um, a figurehead for it. Yep. And so I was like, oh, I can't do this anymore. And people were saying, well, uh, you know, uh, well, what are you going to do next? And ultimately, I remember thinking, and even to this point, I'm like, well, what I do is of no consequence. The music is this transient thing that a lot of it, like you listen back, it's like, that sounds like shit. That song is <laughs> not that great. It's done on ADAT or what have you. Sure. But it's the process that's important. And it's only been over the past maybe five to seven years that I've recognized that the uh, idea of actualizing myself as an entity is ultimately what my goals are. And there is a type of regulator, I think emotionally, spiritually, and creatively, that gets um, attached to that process, where um, as you're willing to experiment and as you're willing to, to fail, it starts becoming clear what each uh, level of the subtlety of being an artist, um, how that reacts to your environment. And if what you're trying to create, ultimately, if your intention is to create destruction, I mean, fair play, mm -hmm. as long as you are committed to that. Right. And for me, when I finally recognize that my uh, intention is to try and help mm -hmm. rather than hinder these things that I have been afraid of become clear to me. It's like, well, you need to experience this. You need to do this. You need to go through this. You need to try this. You need to know how you feel. It's like touching the electric muffin. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? It's like, ow, 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 ow. ow. So um, the way that I keep myself um, centered at this point is because there's a true north, I think, in my mm -hmm. psychology mm -hmm. that knows what it is that I uh, want to... Uh, participate in on a spiritual, on a personal level. Yeah. However, that process, uh, for me, for whatever reason, uh, it's imperative that I know for sure how I feel about something. So for years, I was vegetarian, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And then vegan and all these things. And then I started thinking about, like, well, why? Why are you this? Mm -hmm. And my first reaction is like, well, this is what a spiritual person is supposed to do. Hmm. So I was like, well, fuck it. Start eating meat. Like, see how you feel about it. Right. You know? Like, and I remember I got a, a couple of friends that work at this Buddhist uh, um, uh, center in mm -hmm. Vancouver. And it was funny because a couple of people who I know who are vegan came up and said, well, you know, we know you're vegan. And this is a while back, by the way. Sure. And they, they said, you know, we're really happy to have you on the team and all this. <laughs> and I was like, man, I just ate a rhino's ass for dinner. Yeah. You know what I mean? I went to China and had oh. a pig's anus, you know, like, and, and they, were, they were so disappointed. Mm. And then, but when I was talking to these people at the Buddhist Center, they're like, oh, that's the best thing you can possibly do. Not because of the eating meat, but just knowing. Right. Because if your role, if your faith in what you should or shouldn't do is based in fear of being a bad boy mm. or like, you know, like, oh, 
the reason why I'm, I'm whatever, I abstain from this and that is because I don't want to be punished. I don't want to go to hell or right. whatever your, your, your metaphor for that sort of suffering is, you know what I mean? Sure. Then I think you're, just, you're never actually going to get any semblance of, of truth. Um, Agreed. So my work is about the process. And we talked about this at lunch. Uh, a lot of times people are very critical of what I do because they think it's like goofy. Mm-hmm. They're like, you know, we want to like what you do, <laughs> but I don't get it. You know what I mean? I see it and it's like you got stuffed animals, and, but I know you can scream and I know you can, you know, do shredding guitar. And, yeah. and it's like, so why can't you just like pull it together and quit <laughs> being goofy and just, you know, rock? And I'm like, because it's got fuck all to do about the music. It's like, I need to be who I am mm-hmm. and the funny part of it for me is that after doing this for 30 years, I have a career. So yeah. on some level, I feel the biggest problem that I have, which also helps with keeping myself centered, is each record that comes out, I have to rationalize something that's intuitive. Mm. People, people say, why did you make, you know, why do you have the puppets? And I'm like, I don't fucking know, because I thought it was funny. Yeah, you puppets know, it's, are fun. It's fun. Yeah. And I was like, oh, God, okay, let me think about it. Okay, so it's probably a metaphor that's based on this and that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And also, the last thing I'll say about this, which is surprising considering the amount of talk I do, um, I'm surrounded by people that keep me in check. Mm. You know, I've yeah. got good friends. A lot of my relationships are long-term. Yeah. And, you know, if I am being a douche, I've got people that will tell me mm. that I'm being a douche. It's important. It is important. Well, and part of what I what I hear too is that uh, the industry and and uh, funny enough, like we're supposed to be artists, right? And we're supposed to be a whole group of you know people in the industry that are are supporting the arts and self expression, right? But people forgot somewhere along the lines uh, that that isn't necessarily a serious thing. It doesn't need to be a Hundred percent serious thing all the time, right? Like, like from at least from what I get from this scenario is that uh, you're sincere with your efforts. You're sincere with what you have to offer, and you say this totally. is what I got. I, and sometimes it includes puppets, motherfucker. Well, that's it, and it's, <laughs> it's funny as well because a lot of times people interpret um, what I'm doing as as being uh, flippant or being like, oh, you're doing that because you're just being silly. Yeah. However, um, what I would counter that with is, I think a big part about being a human is recognizing the fundamental absurdity of, you know, this dichotomy between figuring out uh, string theory and, and quantum mechanics and, right. and all, whatever heady uh, uh, pursuits might be, you know, the catchphrase of the day, sure. versus the fact that we're just like lizard brain, like, boobies, you know what I mean? And it's like anybody who expresses to me that they're not, I'm just like, oh, you're so full of shit. Like, just, right. it's okay to be fucking dumb. And anybody, again, who, who, in my estimation, claims that human beings are anything other than just ridiculous are either trying to, like Princess Bride style, sell you something, mm-hmm. or they figure they've got it all worked out. And right. anybody who tells me that they've got the answers is, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. So um, what I tend to do with that is I tend to go down an avenue that uh, started when I was very young of needing... I have a compulsion to express myself on a, a fundamental emotional level. Mm-hmm. Yet, once I go further down and I'm just like, oh, you're so full of shit. <laughs> and then at that point, um, and people have said, oh, well, you sabotage the work by putting like 
farts in it or puppets or whatever. Sure. And I'm like, that's part of the process in a lot of ways. Is it's hopefully comes across as an awareness of amidst the oh my god the infinite mosaic of the eternal present and you know and love and death and all this it's just like yeah we're just a bunch of shit and fucking primates but also poop jokes also farts yeah and also there's certain a part of me that just i like the fact that some people get bummed by it you know what i mean sure i think that's all right that's yeah, totally all right and i but uh, but the, the second thing i would say about that is i think it's a loophole for me to express things that are uh, psychologically really intense for me if I wrap it in a metaphor that is lighthearted. Right. Because otherwise, uh, you get the Bono thing or the Michael Stipe thing yeah. where you're like, what I'm saying is of such significance yeah. that everybody should pay attention to it. And um, it reminds me of that story where Bono was playing in Ireland. Mm. Did you hear that? No. So he was on stage and, you know, 20,000 people or whatever. It's like in his home. Whoa. And he's got everybody to be quiet. He's like, everybody be quiet. And he starts clapping, right? <laughs> and then he's like, every time I clap my hands, a child in Africa dies. And somebody in the back's like, quit fucking clapping then. <laughs> <laughs> it's all your fault, Bo. <laughs> and then I can imagine backstage, the rest of the guys in the band just like... <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but I think you run that risk, dude. Dude. You run that risk because we all have these experiences that are super profound. Yeah, yeah. And to like express that as if you know you're Jesus Ugh. is so fucking arrogant, man. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, no, that's I mean that's and that's where I'm getting off at. Where I, or I, I just apply it to the serious versus sincere. Like I feel like m there's a a big chunk of the world that is takes everything very very serious. And needs, sure. Oh, this is serious. This is serious business. Yeah, right, man. You better fall in line. You yeah, should yeah. stop doing the poop jokes. Like yeah, yeah. like let's let's get busy, Dev, you know, yeah, and it's yeah. like but that that's only a like a, a part of the story of our human condition. It's a part yeah, it's seriousness and kind of being steadfast and, and expanding upon all the, For the sure. big things. Great. For sure. Fine. Part totally. of the story. Totally. However, <laughs> I also would say that a lot of the people that are critical of my work for not being serious enough, when they're in private, they're the same as you and I. Yeah. So my process, which we talked about a second ago, mm -hmm. if it is truly about uncovering who you are and calling yourself on your own shit, to not include who you are in private mm. in your public persona... Um, it doesn't seem to be in line with that. It seems to be disingenuous yeah. if your objective is 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 what mine clearly seems to be. Right. And as devil's advocate, that's not what for everybody. Yeah, that's not everybody's objective. And also the bias in which I write from, like I say, middle class, white Canadian male yeah. with experiences in this, kids getting older, whatever, there's going to be a certain amount of people that listen to it and be like, I just don't like it. Yeah. Which connect. is yeah. great. Yeah. But I think that if it you know, long-windedly, how do you keep yourself centered? It's ultimately uh, taking the piss out of myself because I recognize that ultimately the music is a byproduct of a process that my personality is independent of. Mm, yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what I've, I've what I've noticed. This, I mean, and not that it wasn't all that obvious anyway, but I noticed that. As you kind of finished strapping and you did Ziltoid, yeah, I mean this like it's a very it's a very like I, and, and you just kind of 
framed it really well about how strapping was this this a way to put the anger out here outside of you in a, in a way and say, oh, frame it in a way that I can really dive into it, let it go, scream and yell and make the big chunky riffs and make everybody go crazy, inviting chaos, and then realize, that, oh, shit, like, okay, that was interesting. I manifested, I was able to exercise and manifest this thing. Not exactly in line with my ultimate goals. Okay, what's next? Like, okay, so took the dreads off and the puppet got it. Mm-hmm. So then the puppet got out in front of you. And you're able to say, okay, now this is the other journey. This is part of my transformation journey. And I and, I, and you cloaked it in metaphor and totally twisted it up. And totally. we all laughed and we're like, Zeltoid yeah. rules, yeah, yeah. sure, you know, like which is great. Yeah, but I think I, I think, and I'm, I really appreciate the awareness of that. Thank mm. you. Yeah, because a lot of times people are just like, what the fuck are you doing, dude? But right. to me, um, because my objectives are are dead serious. There's nothing funny about it. You know, there's nothing funny about it. It's like it's my it's my trip. So Ziltoid, as ridiculous of a concept was as it was, if you look at it from the point of view of, okay, strapping. I'm so afraid of anger that I'll be angrier than everybody. That'll mm. keep them away. And then uh. I was like, well, that didn't work. Oh. And then <laughs> I became afraid of the creative compulsion within me that manifests that angry music. So in order for me to uh, understand it, I felt like oh, if I could objectify it in something that seems as juvenile as that compulsion actually is. Yeah. If that inability to uh, face confrontation is truly rooted in something that's like childish, then the manifestation of it, like if you exercise it and turn it into an object, of course it's going to be childish. Right. Like Ziltoid, it's not like What's it going to be like? A, a serious? No, he's 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 a kid. He's like this goofy thing. Yeah. So by doing that and gluing my hair to it, which my mom <laughs> was like, "That's super healthy, great." <laughs> um, I was able to look at it and say, "Oh, I I'm not I'm not actually afraid of this, mm-hmm. but I see what it represents to me." And it wasn't until empath that I was able to say, "Okay, well, in order to get past your fear of that creative compulsion, which clearly resonates with you." Um, you have to face it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's, um, as we're talking, it's really funny as well because every now and then, and it's much less than I used to in the past, I, I make the mistake of reading comments, you know, mm-hmm. about who sure. I am and what I say and, and all this. And one thing that has been uh, good for me recently as well, where, where you know, I, I, people are like, oh, you know, you're, it's a pretentious thing. Or, hmm. um, or you're 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 very pompous as a result of like like speaking as much as you do, and and I gave it some thought, and then recently I came to the conclusion I'm like fuck no, I'm not fuck you, yeah, you know it's like yeah I talk a lot I talk a lot, but it's because I'm fucking asked, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like like the whole I've spent 25 years of having every moment of this creative process. I remember doing fucking tons of mushrooms and then doing a whole day of interviews oh that still God. haunt me because people are like, yeah, remember that? You're the crazy guy. And I'm like, I was so fucking high, dude. Like, holy yeah. shit. Can we just not talk about that? But now? you can't. Like, it's can't. there. Yeah. And, you know, and Bori, the guy who runs Blabbermouth, mm-hmm. I lived with him in LA. Oh, shit. You know, roommates, right? <laughs> and I love Bori. Yeah. And, uh, and I see it every time I say something stupid. It's like blabbermouth, you know? Uh, Devin says, you know, kids should be illegal. And there's a picture of me <laughs> with my finger in my nose. Because I know Bori's like going through the internet trying to find the most brutal picture of you. Yeah, right? And it's yeah. like, but because he's a buddy and because we've been through all this stuff together, I mean, the only thing I can think of is like, yeah, I guess I did say that. 
Yeah. You know? But going through this thing with you, because we know each other, I also realize that there's been a certain amount of progress now mm-hmm. where I'm like, man, if I bug you, if what I do and my trip and my music and the reason why I have fucking puppets and all this stuff, if it bugs you, why are you listening to me? Yeah. You know, like, just don't. Yeah. There's a million other bands out there that would die for your attention. You know what I mean? Just please get fucked. That's you know a, what I mean? That's a really interesting modern thing. I don't know. I, don't, I, I can't speak to, like, what it was like before the internet, even though I, I remember before the internet. We just didn't have chat boards. So if I didn't want to go to a show, I didn't go to a show. Right. If I didn't want to <laughs> listen to a guy's music, I didn't buy it. Yeah. I didn't subject myself to it. But here we pass links around so much and... Uh, there's a lot of things where people just feel like, oh, you know what? I, I got to tell this guy or tell these, his fans that this is shit because he should have did four more of those chugs and like, and, <laughs> and his guitar is ugly and he smells bad. Well, uh, you read that interview too? Yeah. No, <laughs> but um, here, devil's advocate, because I think that's important with these sorts of things. When sure. I was a kid, we used to get together. Beef. Um, I love Beef. Yeah, Beef. He played bass in DTP, and I've known him since I was 12 or 13. So we were kids together. Yeah. And we used to jam in my basement, in my garage. Mm-hmm. And I remember we used to write these fictional things, like to bands. <laughs> like nice. we're going to send letters to Rat and Motley Crue and tell them they fucking suck. Right. Like, that's what we did. And we thought it was hilarious. We're like, sure. we're going to send these mails to these bands <laughs> and just be like, ah, fuck you, ah, right? And what we never did, but at the time, it... We didn't perceive that that action as being like malicious. Right. We just thought it was hilarious. Like a guy with the funny hair, like fuck him. I think that's fine. I think that yep. you write things that you don't necessarily always send, but we're in a place in our modern era where it's too easy to be malicious and to be kind of off the cuff like asshole like to, not to say that hey everybody's entitled to their voice and I I'm all about the sure. devil's advocate. Totally. Sure. I'll I'll hear it all day long. Well, I still got more to go on it. But uh, yeah, you could, people could be a little kinder to each other. That's all. For sure. However, I think the mechanism's the same. What I'm saying with that oh. is the, uh, the intent that we had as kids mm-hmm. were based in being childish, and we didn't have the uh, means mm. to put it out. So my right. uh, devil's advocate position on this is how much of what we, you and I perceive as being malicious is actually based in that same mechanism that is just kids being like douches, right? Right. And I also think it's... Uh, I'll stop there, but let's go on. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I don't know. I was just thinking um, we should we, talk... Go ahead. Okay, no, go. No. I got to pee. You got to pee? But not yet, so... Um, tell me about what you've been listening to. Uh, is there any th- rad stuff, artist, guitarist, non-guitarist, <laughs> that may, might not be something that people know that you listen to or that you just think should be shouted out? I uh, recently spent 500 bucks on a pair of headphones nice. uh, that I was I debated for a month or so. Sennheiser? No, no. Uh, the new Sony uh, Bluetooth noise oh. canceling headphones. Oh. Uh, I had the Bose ones before, but they mm. were wired in. Okay. But I didn't realize until I got the there they are over there. Um, I didn't realize until I tried noise canceling headphones what it does for me in a social environment. Mm. It gives me a room. It gives me a little bubble that I right. can exist in. And because of the amount of traveling, the amount of flying, the amount of being around people that I just don't want to hear their conversation, yet we're in close quarters, those headphones for me are uh, indispensable. And uh, on tour, uh, I have them around my neck or in close proximity 
basically at all times. Mm. And what I listen to on them is almost exclusively other than when I exercise in which I like, you know, five finger death punch or nice. motorhead or things like like things that make me feel like yeah, this is exercise music. It gives me yeah. adrenaline, right? And it sounds good or whatever. But other than that, um I listen to almost exclusively down tempo electronic instrumental chill. Nice. And what I listen to I have no idea because I just have the recommendations from Spotify. Sure. Every day it gives me a new selection of thing. If I like it, I save it. I've got, you know, like the other day I have, um, uh, I was setting up my gear. There's tons of people. And the uh, light guy here, Jimmy, comes and goes, well, what are you listening to? And so, <laughs> and what it was was just Tibetan singing bowls. Nice. Bowl. B-O. Because <laughs> singing bowls would be great. But, um, but that was what it was. It's just, meditative sort of chill stuff but in the morning like we talked earlier i mean morning music for me is has been taiko dive mm. for years yeah and um you know Amazing. but it's just i've got a whole selection of music that all kind of sounds the same and for for me music acts as like a soundtrack to my day and I like music to be in the background i like it to be nondescript and i like it to act almost like a watercolor hmm. and if there was one record that I would recommend to your listeners mm -hmm. that I've listened to uh, without exaggeration maybe 2,000 times in my life um, is by an artist called Rapoon, and the album is called Darker by Light. And I have listened to that record for 15 years. Wow. Uh, at one point, I'd listened to it all day, or I, you know. So that's one. Okay. Um, I had a good time recently with a bunch of the hammock material. Um, John Hopkins, I love what he does. Uh, uh, Chiasmos Blurred, I thought that was a great album. Great record. Um, all India Radio, mm. uh, I really enjoyed that. But it all has a similar yeah. kind of trajectory. There's like a native flute player who, you know, it's like sort of the, the cedar flute with a lot of reverb, which I've liked for years. Mm -hmm. But I like music that um, I don't recognize and just acts as like a constant sort of chill mm. environment for me. Yeah, it probably helps with the nerves and the overall like your mm -hmm. overstimulation of all the other music and creating the heavy stuff and yes, sir, and all the constant barrage of people yeah. like me asking you questions. No, but it's different. Pee. I mean, it's <laughs> like I don't have to pee uh, now. I do now. That I'm oh. reminded of it. Damn you! <laughs> but um, I think my hypersensitivity—the same thing that um, compelled me to make music. Uh, is the same thing that recently, specifically after the demise of my last band, I had to look at seriously as how do I manage this? Because if I don't find a mechanism to to incorporate this into a life that, okay, it's inevitable that I'm going to feel this way. My job requires me being public. My job requires me to, to rationalize my work, mm -hmm. be in front of thousands of people. And if you have the if you don't have the ability to to not absorb the energy mm. of people who you're surrounding yourself with, it's you become a martyr for mm. your for your work. And I've got zero interest in that. Right. So, meditation, physical exercise, those two things um, on the road. So five days a week, uh, mm -hmm. I go to the gym. Uh, I take two days off um, every day, every morning. Meditation, mm -hmm. and in the night, if I've got some sort of uh, uh, place I like to clear the day energetically. 
Uh, the headphones work for me. For example, there's no place to do meditation a lot of times on the bus or anything, but those headphones have a mode where you're, it's completely silent. Oh, nice. So I can be, I can find a corner somewhere and mm -hmm. I can spend 35 or 40 minutes. And between um, those two aspects, um, the energetic uh, requirements of being a professional musician, specifically one that specializes in like heavy or brutal music, mm -hmm. is something that uh, you can maintain. That's awesome. Do you have a, a certain kind of meditation that you mm -hmm. incorporate? Yeah. Is it TM or is it something else? No. It's, um, I go to these silent retreats as well, like where it's like a week of just uh, meditation and, and quiet, and they're really fucking hard, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the, the type that I do, it's, it's, I guess it's kind of mantra-based, mm -hmm. but um, a lot of it has to do with... Uh, um, uh, I don't even know the style. I don't even know what it's called. But it's a specific one to this to this this Lineage place that I go. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, but a lot of it has to do with being aware of the energy centers. I think in my mm -hmm. body, and recognizing which ones of them need to be uh, nurtured mm -hmm. during that day. So a lot of times, even on the tour, I'll go through different colors. You know, what I mean, like one sure. day is red, orange, yellow, green. Kind of chakra style. Very like, much. Yeah. And by doing that, it draws my attention to um, the parts of me that, that require that type of mm. um, attention. And I think the one thing that I have um, really taken from the meditative practice for me is in the beginning I was uh, convinced that meditation was directly uh, connected to um, spirituality, mm. where the people that do it, it's like we had talked earlier, like the rhetoric, the spiritual rhetoric. Mm -hmm. Like, I just really dislike it. Like, you know, you've got to be here now. you got to, <laughs> you know, all the words, the catchphrases that come into it, I find uh, um, difficult. Yeah. And so when I first started doing meditation, you know, maybe 10 years ago, I, I was like, oh, I can't do this. It's like I'm too scattered. I'm I, I, like, I'm, cap I'm incapable of it. Mm. And I had taken classes and I had gone through it. And it always came back to the like, well, you know, your guru and, and all this stuff. And I was just like, God, I just, I just, I don't like it. Mm -hmm. So the turning point came where I was um, investigating different types of, of meditation just for the sake of like my anxiety. I'm like a high anxiety guy. And I stumbled upon this thing on the internet that described meditation in a way that changed everything for me. Mm. And it was... If you view your meditation as a goal, if you're a goal-oriented person and your objective through meditation is spiritual transcendence, mm. like if your goal for this is to become enlightened, mm -hmm. um, you're going to have a real rough time. <laughs> yeah. However, if you view it as in a similar way to as you get older, your muscles need to be exercised purely because if you don't, they atrophy. Mm -hmm. You know, your testosterone changes. There's... So... As opposed to lifting weights with the goal of becoming, you know, jacked, Duke, <laughs> Fuckington, or whatever, you know, what I mean? um, it's like I, this. I'm doing this because um, because it's good for me, and I like that my body functions in a way it allows me to do all these things that I like. Right. If I if you view meditation as being the same process for those of us who overthink which I tend to do, mm -hmm. then the process becomes less about I'm trying to become enlightened and more about for 40 minutes in the morning, I have an exercise for my mind that 
consciously, I recognize when I've strayed from my breath, recognize that that failure, if you want to look at it that way, is not something that, as somebody who's such a perfectionist, I should be critical of myself for. And then gently draw yourself back to your, to your focus. Then the process becomes more like fail, start again. Fail, start again. Mm. Fail, start again. And every time you start again, there's an element of forgiveness in that. Mm-hmm. And then after 40 minutes, you get up. There's no objective. It's like doing reps for overthinking. And with that, the transformation on an improvisation level for me has been monumental mm. because I think with this sort of um, people-pleasing or... or um, I have to be perfect. You know, I was the child that was, you know, had expectations on me. Right. With that comes a reticence to improvise because there's a sense that like, but what if I fuck up? Mm-hmm. And when people say, give us one um, piece of advice for uh, beginning musicians, uh, it's exactly the same as the meditative process in my mind in that you need to learn to fail efficiently. And by efficiently, mm-hmm. I mean without being, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible. I'm a piece of shit. Right. I, sh- you know, I should be better than this. I, you know? And um, that piece of advice that I found from the meditative practice has allowed me for 40 minutes in the morning to exercise the part of my brain that overthinks. Hmm. So, I yeah. love it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's part of what uh, I get out of meditation is... Uh, it's quite literally the thing that I, that doesn't have a real purpose to to me in in the sense that I'm not trying to get anywhere with it. Um, it's just a nice interval. Like it's like there's so much chaos and craziness in my life, and uh, here's uh, some time that I can. It is it is a bit of an exercise, right? Because you're kind of returning to the breath, returning to the breath, or your mantra or whatever. But I find that that in that process of just having one simple thing. To, to return to, um, I just I and it's not even in the in the in the moment so much that I'm like excited about any of it. It's just a thing that I notice as I get up, as I leave from that space, from that stillness, that I'm just so much more clear or you know calmer about totally like the next thing. And it's just like you put a space between songs on the record, and sometimes it's a little bit longer because you you know that space. Uh, need, you know, needs to be valued in music, right? Like in all these different ways. Like if we don't have space or stillness, then we don't have the motion or the the sound. We don't have the things, right? And I'm going to throw this into the conversation. Yeah. Um, you and I, because we've known each other for a long time, we can discuss meditation in terms like that. Mm-hmm. And we can look at each other and say, I relate. I right. agree. Um, one thing I'll throw in that I, as you were speaking, I thought was important as well, or not important, but interesting, mm-hmm. is that I think meditation is uh, something that can benefit everybody. And right. I think a lot of us are not wired in the ways where that as the benefit is of enough um, uh, importance to do it. Right. You know, you say, okay, well, we want to be in the silence. We want to be in the moment. I think there's a lot of people that could benefit from meditation that think, mm. I, do, I don't care. So the same way with that, that guy who does, you know, the wrestler that does the yoga. What's his name? 
the deep DP yoga, you know, he, oh, I should know that. Anyway, he was, he's, he's like a wrestler and he okay. does this thing and it's, it's, is it yoga in the terms of like, you know, <laughs> what they're doing in India? No, it's yeah. not. However, the principles of it, because he's explaining it in a way that the benefits of it have like a tangible um, outcome for people that need that, but maybe are turned off by what yoga actually is. Right. Um, allows people to participate in in a way that you're just like, oh, I'm getting the benefits on some level of this because I'm not turned off by the rhetoric. Right. And I think in a similar way, the idea of, of expressing meditation as an exercise, mm-hmm. even though uh, fundamentally having it viewed as an exercise puts a goal on it, for sure. Sure, sure. But for people that really need it, I think that if it's explained like, look, if you want a goal, here's your goal. Uh, you think too much. Mm-hmm. Maybe you've admitted it to me. Maybe you know you're you're aware enough that you say, "Hey, I'm spinning in circles every time these situations come up." I think if you can, and this is why that explanation of it really worked for me, is because up to that point it was so vague mm-hmm. what the experience was because it was wrapped up in the, you know, in spiritual speak. Got to be this. one and in the moment, yeah. and I'm just kind of like, yeah, but. What, uh, Mm-hmm. It seems like a lot of effort to be involved with that. Oh, it's so much effort. But to say somebody, you think too much, this is a tangible way for you to help that. It will, it will affect your life in this way, this way, and this way. For me, because um, regardless of what, what the... Um, I needed that. I needed to be told, this is the reason why it will do mm-hmm. it for you. I, I don't have the patience to, to engage in, in like, you know the being in the moment thing, but I really know I think too much. Yeah. So that, I guess that's my point with why that was important to me. That's a great, that's a great way to, to, to look at it too, because I actually, I remember early on trying to meditate and I thought, and a lot of, I think it's a misconception that you're trying to clear your mind, clear your mind, clear your mind. And it's like, what inevitably happens is the thoughts keep coming, they keep coming, they keep coming. And somebody had told me, I said, well, you know, like, really it's it's about this exposing that you think too much right mm-hmm. number one mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily about trying to rid your mind of all the thoughts but just notice when you've deviated from the breath and 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 when when new thoughts come in uh like you can either just return to the breath or follow them follow them to their completion in a way mm-hmm. right so that you can kind of almost exhaust them and then return to the breath i think the thing that i got lost with the with the instructions of return to the breath was no one had told me that the way for me to return to the breath was to forgive myself for straying from it. Oh. It seemed like a, wow. like something that maybe if you've been doing it for a while, you'd be like, oh, of course, you forgive yourself. But for me, it's a big deal. it was the thing. Because I find that the process of self-actualization and wherever I get to that in my lifetime, whether or not I get 2% there or or 200% there, um, the process of that, everything is intrinsically connected uh, from what I can tell. Mm -hmm. And the method of returning to my breath required me to learn how to forgive myself for straying. And it took me a long time to find the methodology from somebody who articulated that. It mm. just seemed like people like, oh, just return to your breath. And I'm like, yeah, but, <laughs> oh my God. Okay, just return to your breath. And, but every time I strayed, I was like, why can't I do this? What's wrong with me? Why am I thinking about cows or whatever, you know? <laughs> and um, 
part of that process, I, I and this is a hard one, man, is I uh, summon, I forget where I read it, but they said every morning when you wake up, look at yourself in the mirror, look in your eyes and say, I love you. Mm. And that process, which I started, kick-started something that really helped that returning to my breath. And even now when I say it and I look at myself in the mirror and I look at my eyes and I say, Devin, I love you, my eyes are just like, oh, no, fuck you. Mm. <laughs> you know, why? What the fuck's wrong with you? That's big work. Yeah, that's... but I think that's it's it's all connected. And I think that take on a tangible level. I want to learn to be more free in my writing of metal mm-hmm. to be able to like really rip. Yeah. You know? Okay, well, how do you do that? Well, you have to be clear enough of your own judgment that if you write a riff that seems weird, you don't go, oh, that sucks, and stop. You just let it rip. Yeah. And I think that the process of, of self-forgiveness for something as benign-seeming as like straying from your breath is the exact way that that can be like uh, influenced. I, this, is, this is really good insight. I, actually, I, had, I had not brought forgiveness as a concept into meditation, but you're, you're uncovering it's, something for me in this moment like that I feel like is crucial. The foundation. Yeah, especially for listeners that are new to, the, to this process of trying to uncover self uh, along the way totally. of, of you know, self-discovery and everything. Um, yeah, like forgiveness and begin again. You know, like, that's what the process is. That's what that's was so it. fascinating about it. It's like, that's what it said. The process is not about anything other than fail, Forgive yourself, start again. Fail, forgive yourself, start again. Fail, forgive yourself, start. For 40 minutes, and then get up and do your day. Yeah. And every day, and it's funny, it's like, and that's why I, I equate it to lifting weights. I can see that. Because after a while, you're just, your muscles acclimatize to it. Right. And I think that the pattern-oriented creatures that we are, the more you say to yourself, it's okay, start again, it's okay, start again, then when you're in a, a conflict situation... Or you're on stage where you're, you know, hecklers or you're doing some sort of banter or you go south or you, you say something that's stupid. And mm-hmm. then it's the same mechanism that you're training that goes, it's okay, start again, forget it. Yep. You know? That's probably best advice. I mean, I, I have, uh, I can see, I know that this is a world of uh, everybody's trying to perform and have their five minutes of fame on social media or whatever. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, self, negative self-talk and in in like need people wanting to perform for others and everything. And so this is like maybe some of the most, I mean, crucial street level advice I could even imagine giving any human beings. Like you're saying like everybody could benefit. That's it. Yeah. And, and and, but I think because it's been wrapped up in the, the gauze of spirituality, Mm. um, I think there's a certain practical application of it that has been lost. The technique, the technique of, of just, look, this is a method to um, get over the judgment mm-hmm. that every step of our day has, you know? Like, I'm going to have a donut. Oh, I shouldn't have a donut. Oh, I'm a piece of shit because I'm going to have the donut. Or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, I think it's, it's by exercising practically that mechanism, you get, it becomes easier to say, oh, I'll have the donut, sure. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, and then the, maybe the next day, because you weren't so... I'm a bad boy. I shouldn't have the donut. You look at it and you just be like, eh, I did that. I, I did it. it. I'm good. Yep. You know? And that was the same thing with like eating meat or, you know, or, or um, doing drugs or, or drinking or, or anything that now when 
you know, vegetarian or vegan or, or whichever way. I mean, try to be vegan as much as I can, but, you know, sometimes it's hard on tour and sure. cheese is in fucking everything. Yeah. But uh, now my reasons for doing that are based in, like, practical experience. It's not like, man, I wish I could have, like, eaten a horse's ass, but I never <laughs> did, right? Right. And then you eat a horse's ass, and you're like, oh, it was a horse's ass, man. I Interesting. really wish I hadn't eaten that yeah. horse's ass. He was a nice horse, right? Yeah. I ate a pig's heart once. Did you? Yeah. Did it you? A, it was a pig strummy sandwich. Oh, my it's God. What a pig, great name. Pig strum. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah. It wasn't that great. Well, but you tried You know, it. but I did. Yeah. I was like, I was like I, this makes me kind of want to be vegan right <laughs> yeah, now. Well, see, it's gross. So you're talking about with L.A., man. Like, after a while, it's like, you're just, just by experiencing it, like, okay, let's never do that again. Yeah, we're good on that. Yeah. Thanks, thanks, L.A., for showing me. However, I do like the idea of you taking the pig's heart out like that Indiana Jones scene where he reaches into the guy's chest yeah. and pulls it out Zoom. and then just putting it on a Kaiser bun, <laughs> eating it, and then being like, well, well vegan. Yeah. <laughs> Done. Vegan yeah. now. Well, um... I got to pee yeah. so bad. Dude, thank dude. you so much for taking the time. Thanks for driving me out from San Diego. You got it, dude. Anytime. <laughs> right on, brother. I'll, I'll drive Miss Debbie. <laughs> Love you, man. Di- driving Miss Debbie. <laughs> All right, I'm going pee now. All See right. you guys. Later. Players Pick Podcast. Picks and Perspective with Chris Johnson. This episode of Players Pick Podcast brought to you by our good friends at Jim Dunlop Guitar Products, Kiesel Custom Guitars, Mackie Headphones and Mixers. Sound design by Drew of the Drew. Intro and outro voiceovers by the amazing Mini Joe. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>